Welcome to the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikram Mancharamani. If you haven't subscribed, please do so via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Podbean. And now, over to Dr. Mancharamani. Hi, and thanks for tuning in to this fourth episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. As you may recall, the last episode discussed the impact of the current coronavirus pandemic and how it was impacting our economy, the political dynamics here in the United States, as well as possible implications for the Chinese Communist Party and the Iranian leadership team as they suffered through the pandemic as well. This week, what I want to do is look through the noise of the current news and try to identify some signals as to how our lives may be different after the pandemic passes. Specifically, I'm going to consider the implications for the education sector, finance, and real estate, as well as transportation, healthcare, and manufacturing. I'll touch on energy and power markets, as well as technology, and conclude with some thinking around how one can invest through these dynamics and the implications for uh, those trying to navigate uncertainty in financial markets. Get started here. Let's actually just review where we are with the coronavirus and its impact. Um, in the last episode, I discussed how the Chinese Communist Party would either be seen as really capable or as perhaps incompetent. And I think the evidence is now coming in that the former interpretation is proving to be more accurate. The Chinese Communist Party, especially in light of the fact that the rest of the world seems to be struggling in containing the pandemic, is starting to look like they knew what they were doing and they did a relatively good job. Um, this is not the interpretation that we all had as the pandemic was beginning in Wuhan, but it seems to be the emerging consensus and narrative now. Uh, so the Chinese Communist Party may prove to be uh, strengthened by this development, which is not what I would have said a month ago. Secondly, uh, economics. Uh, we know that the U.S. is heading into a massive contraction, Great Depression era style slowdown. Um, and this is very significant. Uh, for various reasons. Number one, small businesses are going to collapse and face a lot of pressure. Think of just what's happening in Cambridge, Massachusetts, near Harvard University and near MIT. As major college towns have had students go home and faculties uh, distributed to work from home and teach remotely, what we're seeing is the coffee shops, the restaurants, the bars, all of the places students used to spend money and faculty used to visit are turning out to have very few customers present, resulting in massive economic distress. So there's an economic impact, and we see it on a micro level. On a macro level, we're starting to hear of stimulus coming from the U.S. government. We're seeing the Fed starting to print more money, and financial markets appear, at least at this stage, to be stabilizing. I'm not sure I would say they seem to be rebounding yet, but they do show some signs of stabilization. Medically, we know there's going to be large loss of life. Uh, we're seeing this in Italy. We're starting to see it in New York City. We've seen it in other countries around the world, and lockdowns are accelerating rather than dissipating. We know the United Kingdom just uh, effectively locked down um, their country. Italy's in lockdown. Spain's in lockdown. And then most recently, 
India decided to put a stay-at-home order for 1.3 billion people. This is going to cause a significant amount of economic distress on a country that I've been negative on for years. Um, In fact, I've been saying for the last few years that I think India may in fact emerge to be the biggest disappointment relative to expectations for emerging markets investors over the next five to 10 years. Uh, And that has to do largely with my view of technology eliminating jobs, but also because of the political paralysis caused by a democracy combined with nationalism, etc. So the coronavirus is not going to help the Indian story. In fact, it makes me more negative on the prospects for India's growth than before. And then we know what's happening with elections in the United States. Primaries are being postponed. And as primaries are being postponed, we're also starting to hear for the first time the idea that the U.S. election in November could be postponed or take place in a different format. It may, in fact, be done uh, remotely. Perhaps it's a lot of voting via the mail. Or uh, it's conceivable that we have a technological solution that emerges between now and then. Uh, It's, again, worth watching. Socially, we're starting to see major impacts on um, community groups, right? Churches and religious institutions are not gathering the way they used to. Um, We're starting to see uh, a sense of Loneliness, uh, sort of, you know, there's a lot of online commentary about maintaining mental health when isolated. Um, And so we're starting to see social impacts around the world, and that's accelerating, not decelerating. And of course, the future of work, uh, a topic that's been on the agenda for years, is now getting a lot of attention. Uh, Obviously, Zoom and webinars are happening more frequently. In fact, I'm going to be hosting some more on that later. Um, But we are seeing um, this idea that uh, remote work is not only increasingly possible, but necessary. Uh, So that is another major change that's happening real time right now. So let's shift gears uh, now and start thinking about life after the coronavirus um, and how this change of this pandemic on our lives will manifest itself in the future, uh, particularly in various domains of life. So let me begin with education, a a domain that's very personal, uh, one that I spend a large portion of my life interacting with, one that I think is critical to the development of human talent uh, around the world and the realization of potential. So right off the bat, I can tell you that it seems to me uh, higher education will definitively be rethought. Distance education is proving more useful and more capable than we had previously uh, imagined, and this may accelerate changes, uh, reducing cost, maybe even threatening uh, existing norms within higher education. Will new models emerge, such as a hybrid online and offline model? Uh, There are schools that are experimenting with this to begin with. Now, they tended to be schools like the Minerva Project, which were startups from scratch, uh, rather than the adapting uh, existing schools. Um, 
because you can imagine uh, suggesting at a place like Harvard that all classes be put online would be met with such opposition from the faculty and existing entrenched interests that they would never have done that. Uh, but having now done that and found that it does work well in certain domains, uh, certain subjects, you can imagine that going forward, this could help reduce cost, increase efficiency, and enable student engagement in ways that we hadn't imagined. So I think education may, in fact, be changing permanently in front of our eyes. The implications on the cost of education can also be dramatic. Uh, we knew through things like the Khan Academy, etc., that distance education had the potential to be more impactful and possibly even better than in-person education. Why wouldn't you find the best educator of a particular topic and have that person stream or digitally deliver lectures to the widest possible audience? It made sense. Rather than having 150 people teaching Physics 101, why not have the best person teach it 150 times in a digital format? So I think that will happen. I think that development is underway. And the implications are that costs could drop. Now, this may mean that student debt will self-correct. I think we've got a big built-up problem. But on a going forward basis, you might imagine that student debt could, in fact, uh, be less of an incremental problem. So education is a domain that we can see changing right now in front of us and will likely have major implications going forward. Secondly, let's talk about finance, but not in the investment sense, but in a personal finance sense. Uh, think about the fact that there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of branches for banks around the United States. How many of them are consistently visited by customers? I don't know the answer to that, but I have to imagine that as we find interaction with for, with humans uh, potentially fraught with risks we hadn't thought about, maybe the coronavirus and other diseases is one angle, uh, but maybe that forces the distancing to begin with. But the ultimate impact may be greater efficiency by having fewer human-to-human -human interactions and enabling more of the digital uh, transacting. And so bank branches, I don't know that we need that many. I mean, I live in Lexington, Massachusetts, and we have in the center of Lexington probably, jeez, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, probably like six or seven bank branches in one small town. Um, I don't know that we need those. Speaking on a more macro uh, level about finance, we do know that the Federal Reserve has started printing money and printing lots of it. That is a fundamental debasement of currency. Um, and that is something where each dollar should be worth less going forward. Um, and that means that there should be more and more interest in currencies that cannot be printed. Now, historically, that's been gold and precious metals uh, over thousands of years, but also more recently, it may prove to be digital currencies such as Bitcoin. And I'm trying to learn more and more about them every opportunity I get, but I do think there's probably going to be rising interest in non-printable currencies. And so that may, uh, may in fact, prove to be uh, a quite disruptive development that is accelerated by this more recent coronavirus outbreak and the government and political economic response to it. All right, let's, uh, let's keep going. Uh, real estate is another sector I've been thinking a lot about. And within real estate, 
it's conceivable that this urban renaissance that we've had over the last 30 years in the United States, where it's been fashionable to move into the downtown redeveloped districts, be concentrated and have density of people so that you could have more uh, options when it came to restaurants and coffee shops and walkable retail, etc. Is it conceivable that that trend may slow or possibly even reverse in light of the fact that human density may be seen as less desirable? It's possible. The flip side of that is, will there be more money, attention, and development spent in rural areas? Is it conceivable that towns that were previously thought of as second tier, third tier, or even in the rural areas, um, towns that had no attention, um, suddenly find themselves with more attention and they become more desirable. And you see an influx. We've seen this in some rural Texas towns, um, and I've been reading a little bit about those, uh, where lots of money has come in to redevelop formerly abandoned towns. And I think that's a very fascinating possibility, um, and it could happen more broadly through rural America. This could mean money flowing outwards rather than toward cities, and it could be development channeled into the rural areas where historically uh, farmers and others um, had been the dominant influence. Maybe there are new industries that pop up. Uh, again, the geography of human uh, habitation may change in light of the sort of desire to be less uh, densely populated. Uh, relating to that as well, um, in terms of real estate and s shared space and uh, scale impacts, you know, I think we are getting close to the end of the idea of salad bars and other uh, sort of self-serve food systems. Actually, I was always nervous about salad bars because of my allergies, and that meant I was always thinking about how a prior uh, customer might have used the tongs from one dish to take food from another dish, uh, resulting in cross-contamination that could be problematic for me. So I've always been skeptical for allergy reasons, but I can imagine going forward having open food left out uh, in shared environments will be seen as less desirable. Uh, that's a change that may be coming and may be permanent. And think about transportation. We know the impact that the coronavirus has had on cruise ships and airlines, um, but we haven't really talked much about what it may do to the mass transit systems we've been developing around our urban centers. Will subways and bus lines be deemed suddenly undesirable? Will this, in fact, increase the demand for individual forms of transportation, such as cars, or as we move forward into individual drones and what have you for transportation? Uh, is that a possible development? It, it sure seems so to me. Um, and on the flip side, perhaps transportation, uh, the transportation sector benefits dramatically from the increased demand for remote food delivery, remote shopping. Um, and then what about healthcare? Here's an area that I've been thinking a lot about. Again, here we've decided that centralized healthcare is better. You have a star surgeon, a star doctor, they can see lots of patients if you put them in one place and have everyone come to them. Uh, and that's made a lot of sense for certain areas where you need scale. We don't wanna have every single uh, small doctor's office having an operating room. That doesn't make sense. Hospitals centralize and enable it. Uh, so low utilization, um, 
when distributed items should be centralized to increase their utilization, especially if they're high cost. But does it really make sense to bring people together that are sick when they can cross-infect each other? Is it conceivable that infectious disease management may get changed to being more remote or decentralized? Think about what's happened in um, Washington State with the nursing home, right? A nursing care, a centralization effort, uh, ultimately resulted in mass cross-infection and meaningful deaths. Um, and so on the margin, I have to imagine that, um, you know, families with uh, elderly family members that may need nursing care will be thinking twice or at least thinking more seriously about the risks of putting family members in shared or centralized nursing facilities or assisted care facilities. This also means that telemedicine will probably accelerate. The use of remote uh, medical advice, uh, I think, will really uh, take off. We're starting to see that actually right now where insurance companies are allowed to charge for telemedicine consultations um, or allowing doctors to charge for telemedicine consultations. So I think that's going to happen. I also think we'll see increased government support for R&D efforts around how to deliver medicine better, how to deliver medical care better. Um, so that's uh, that I think is is likely. And then when it comes to manufacturing, we know that we've seen the increasing use of robotics. Um, but think about what this may mean because of the coronavirus impact. We may actually uh, accelerate what was already a rapid adoption rate. It'll also mean that supply global supply chains that were organized around just-in-time, lowest-cost, most efficient structures still shift towards supply chains that were designed around just-in-case resilient infrastructures. Think about our drug manufacturing processes today. Large, a large percentage of the drugs and antibiotics used in the United States are manufactured outside of the United States. This creates a vulnerability that the United States may no longer want to have that will force a reshoring, but it'll also recreate the supply chains in ways that may make America more resilient from shocks in the future. And so that's something I think other countries will likely do. Uh, and manufacturing, which has always been concentrated, again, for scale reasons, may find that it gets distributed especially in an era of 3D and additive manufacturing, you can imagine having distributed manufacturing that doesn't have the vulnerabilities that come with density or scale. Um, and so 3D manufacturing, I can imagine getting a real, real tailwind here. Uh, and, and speaking of this sort of big uh, sort of uber theme that I'm, I'm describing here of decentralization or, or distribution of formerly centralized services and processes. Um, you can imagine that happening with energy. Right now we use centralized power plants or central power plants that produce energy and then we use transmission lines to distribute that energy. Well, solar, rooftop solar or uh, local generation could in fact become more the norm, reducing the vulnerabilities 
that are being formed by having centralized infrastructure. So, you know, redundancy and resilience may prove to be as important as efficiency. And I think that's coming from this domain. Uh, what about entertainment? We've already started to see virtual concerts uh, and virtual performances, but could you imagine virtual museums um, and other dynamics like that? Sure, I mean, that's, that's a possibility. And then when it comes to technology, I think this is a really big topic that I probably don't have time to get into here today in any depth, but we do need to think about the idea of technology as surveillance versus technology as an you know, enabling um, and the privacy implications thereof. Um, we know that one reason China was able to contain the pandemic rapidly in Wuhan is because of their social surveillance systems. Um, you know, we don't have those around the world. Maybe we could, maybe we should. Should Google and Apple combine their data to allow me you know, medical authorities to track cases and see who interacted with who? This is a controversial concept, and I'm not sure where we're going to end up on this, but I will tell you that um, surveillance uh, versus privacy uh, when it comes to technology and capitalism is something I'm watching. You know, I can imagine governments calling some of these rich data sources that live in companies like Apple and Google to their service to help with community-level threats and I know that at the very beginning of this podcast, I had mentioned that I would be concluding with thoughts about personal investing through the uncertainty and post the coronavirus pandemic, but I sadly feel like we've run out of time. So for the next podcast episode, I will discuss navigating uncertainty and how to invest through the pandemic crisis to a future that may be very different. And lastly, perhaps one of the most important dynamics I think that will transpire because of the coronavirus pandemic and its impact on our lives that will not go away after the pandemic passes is our relationship with experts. I think it is time to reevaluate our relationship with experts. Not only must we think for ourselves, but we also need to know when to rely on experts. And managing experts, I think, will prove to be one of the most vexing challenges of our time to figure out where that line should be drawn of where you believe in your own thinking versus where you should pay attention to expert guidance and advice. And that is a nice way for me to wrap up this podcast because that fundamentally is the topic of my next book, which will be coming out in June. Think for yourself is a book I wrote to help individuals as well as groups and companies manage that balancing act between expert guidance and individual self-reliance. And I hope you do get a chance to read it. I would welcome your feedback. It's available for pre-order on Amazon right now. But um, I do think it's a timely book, and this pandemic is making it even more timely, which uh, is interesting. So in any case, Thanks for taking the time to listen to this podcast. I do welcome any and all feedback you have. And uh, before I wrap up, I just want to put a plug in here at the very end for another podcast. My son, Kai, he's nine years old, um, recently started a podcast of his own. It's called The Kai Guy Show, K-A-I space G-U-Y. And it's targeted towards 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-olds and 
Kai reviews current events, news stories he finds interesting, and other random tidbits of uh, news that is fascinating to, to him. And you can subscribe to The Kai Guy Show at either Apple Podcasts on your iPhone or iOS device or Podbean. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. For more information, please do visit Dr. Manchumani's website at www.manshamani.com or follow him on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. And of course, if you haven't done so already, we encourage you to purchase his book, Think for Yourself, which is available for pre-order on Amazon.